Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. I titled this uh, The Irish in America and How They Got That Way, Engaging in the Time-Honored Irish Tradition of Stealing the Best Lines from Other People. Uh, Malachi McCourt gave a, a talk with the same title, and I'm pretty sure that he lifted it from somebody else. So uh, I am offering Malachi that tribute. In looking at the Irish in America, the first natural uh, view of it was to try to tell the story chronologically. Uh, but I think there's more to it than just rattling off a series of events or achievements there. So what I've done is I've tried to break up the story of the Irish in America into four different sections. So first, I'll talk about the old country and how Irish America, Irish Catholic Americans uh, really view Ireland through the, through the lens of the Great Famine and how the Great Famine has kind of colored our view of that country and remains uh, influential even today. Yeah. Uh, the second uh, installment will be on the fighting Irish and how uh, Irish famine migrants wound up in the United States and their not so friendly uh, greeting from the American nativist movement and the Irish pugnaciousness that resulted, both physical and verbal. Uh, nowadays, you see more of the verbal than the physical, hopefully, but, uh, but nonetheless, it is there. Third, I'd like to talk about the enduring connections, about how uh, Irish emigrants and their descendants would try to continue this connection with Ireland and even put forward uh, a discrete Irish-American ethnicity. And finally, we'll end hopefully on a high note by talking about the arrival of Irish Americans and the kind of uh, pinnacle of, of national influence that they would realize in the mid and late 20th century. So to talk about the old country, it's worth pointing out here uh, that when we talk about the initial Irish migration, it's really in the 18th and early 19th century, it's really Irish Protestants coming over there. Now, I want to point that out to explain that I, I will not be addressing that aspect. That's next Wednesday's presentation. So hopefully you'll be here at that point. Uh, no, I'm, I'm just kidding. Spring break is, is still going. Uh, but in talking about Irish Catholic society in, among the peasants in Ireland before the famine in the early 19th century, we can see that there was a very strong taboo against emigration, against leaving. And uh, doing such was perceived as kind of turning your back on your own people there. And so we can see this really explained in a kind of passive sense. As a matter of fact, in the Irish language, there is no word for emigrant referring to someone who picks up and leaves. The word that's used is actually diori, which means exile. So it's setting up emigration as a kind of passive acceptance of a larger reality. And that passive acceptance really is imposed 
on the Irish peasantry with strongest force in the late 1840s there. Uh, in order to explain a little bit more about this mindset, I thought I would play just a short clip of a song here. So this is the paradox that Irish-American ethnics are dealing with, talking about a country that's so lovely, so beautiful, so pure and wholesome, but also having to explain why they left. And the famine would really dominate Irish and Irish-American memory in that regard then. And when we talk about the famine, there are various ways to explain what's taking place. Demographically, there uh, has been a school of historians earlier in the 20th century that would look upon the famine as a kind of Malthusian crisis, explaining it as merely the result of uh, overpopulation there. And there were indeed very high rates of population growth in the 18th and early 19th century. Although, curiously enough, those population growth rates subsided before the famine. There's another factor as well that should be added in, and this is the reality that for the Irish peasantry in the West and in the South, in those areas most strongly hit by the famine, these were tenant farmers. They were not allowed to own their own land throughout most of the 18th century. So what you had was the kind of creation of, a, of an underground of sharecroppers, essentially, uh, who lived in a culture, in a society, practiced a religion, and spoke a language that was alien to the landowners there, uh, making up the vast majority of the Irish population in the West. Uh, these people have been described by one historian as a hidden Ireland, an Ireland out of sight there but the impact of the famine would hit them most drastically. It would hit the most isolated poor in that regard. And those poor would bring a sense not just of disorientation, but also a sense of bitterness at what had transpired. Now, most of these people had never ventured much further than 20 or 30 miles away from home. 
and now they were sent across the Atlantic to try to survive. These are some of the contemporary pictures of the Irish. Here is an Irish ejectment, as it was known, really an eviction. And here's another portrait of uh, some people distributing aid to the Irish peasants during the famine. About one million men, women, and children travel from Ireland to the United States in the 10 years between 1845 and 1855. If you were to adjust it in terms of population today, that would be an amount of 13 million people, which makes this the largest influx into this country uh, per capita, either before or after. Not only were there waves of these Irish coming over, they were also increasingly desperate. If we look at uh, the map of the west of Ireland, one of the things we find is that the f mortality rate is only dropping in areas of departure. So it quite literally was to leave or to die. Yeah. We have a, a record of poverty there and a desperation shown by the willingness of these immigrants not only to leave the only home they've ever known, but to embark in poorly adjusted timber sh ships, known as coffin ships, even crossing the North Atlantic in the dead of winter, a very perilous passage at that. And when they arrived in the United States, these people were certainly of a foreign nature, as many of the Americans came to see them. Among the Americans, it's, it's interesting that when we look at the history that's been written of the famine. The famine was commemorated a century later in Ireland in the late 1940s in a fairly subdued manner there, with most of the historians taking kind of the bloodless Malthusian picture. But by the time the sesquicentennial came around in the late 1990s, the historians of the famine had taken a, a step forward to ask the question, if not of blame, of responsibility for the famine there. And so one of the things we find is some of the strongest memories of the famine are not necessarily from Ireland itself, but from Irish America. Yeah. We see a couple memorials to the Irish famine. Up here, we see a memorial in Boston. Another memorial not too far away in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I'm not sure if you can make out the caption there, but it reads, never again should a people starve in a world of plenty, referring to the fact that the greatest share of population lost in a famine in the Western world took place a couple hundred miles away from the wealthiest country in the world at the time. And then we have a memorial in Philadelphia as well, really dwelling on the kind of agony of this episode. Well, getting back to the Irish who showed up over here, we can see this massive wave really take place in the late 1840s and early 1850s. And in addition to the unprecedented volume, we have a, a large body of people, the vast majority of whom are illiterate. Many don't even speak English, speaking the Irish language instead. They are unprepared for industrial life, many of them having lived in the countryside, working potato fields there, 
So very little in terms of the kind of job skills or even the awareness of a factory work clock that would be necessary in the industrial world. And there was a quite an uh, impressive concentration of Irish migrants with over 90% setting up shop in seven states in the United States along the East Coast. So we have the concentrations in Boston, in New York, in Philadelphia, and those cities. They also brought over a fairly rough tradition of rural life in Ireland there. Uh, we have episodes of faction fighting as portrayed taking place in the 1820s, 1830s, a kind of rough justice administered. There were also traditions like Puck's Fair, which was a yearly celebration, a kind of indulgement in bacchanalia in Ireland there, with all sorts of exuberance, uh, intemperance of all types, and lots going on there. And we have secret societies, a way for communities to enforce justice far outside the reach of any notion of law and order, whether exerted from Dublin or from London. So here we have a group of people known as the White Boys paying a nighttime visit to a recalcitrant landlord who had charged exorbitant rents. These secret societies would also make their way across to North America. So if you're familiar with the Molly Maguires of the coal fields of eastern Pennsylvania, this is where they're coming from. None of these things, it could be fair to say, ever endeared the Irish immigrants to the settled, respectable Americans who came to greet them then. And in American nativism, then, we have a whole slew of very worried writers there. Uh, one of the most uh, prominent books of the 1850s is known as The Diary of Maria Monk, which listed all sorts of nefarious acts of the Catholic Church there. While the monastery, the convent from which Maria Monk allegedly uh, fled was in Quebec, it was clear that Irish immigrants were now going to be the face of the Catholic Church. But in its leaders, we had some people who were fully up to the challenge. This man right here is Archbishop John Hughes of New York City, who drew his nickname of Dagger John for his practice of making a cross whenever he get, gave his signature. There was an episode where uh, there were some churches burnt in Philadelphia, and Archbishop Hughes decided it was time for a sit-down with the mayor of New York City to warn against any such actions in New York. Hughes simply reminded, but not threatened, the mayor that if a single church in New York was to be torched, the entire city would look like Moscow after Napoleon was done with it. It was very hard to misunderstand the meaning of Archbishop John Hughes' words there. Hughes demonstrated, <clears throat> out of a personal experience, a bond of sympathy with the lowly workers that the Irish would become, as they would be termed the hewers of wood and the drawers of water. And when the New York City public school system was not to John Hughes's liking for its attempts to kind of evangelize with Protestant versions of the scriptures, of history even, John Hughes would set up an alternative 
system of schooling that would give us the parochial schools we have today. These were the depictions in the prominent American uh, newspapers and periodicals in the 1850s then. We have the allegation that the Irish poorhouse is being sent over in its entirety. And here's an illustration of poor Paddy in Dublin eyeing a poster that would offer him to take him away from Ireland and no longer becoming Ireland's problem in the eyes of the illustrator, but now becoming America's problem. Uh, here's a depiction of John Bull and Uncle Sam sharing their commiseration about the bogus American. And there's very little to be misunderstood there as this convict is shown with his prominent jaw, the simian features that were applied to Irish immigrants. And here's poor Paddy, having gotten himself in trouble again in Miss Columbia's public school there for some sort of misbehavior. This is an even a, uh, a version of an earlier English cartoon called uh, The Irish Guy Fox. If you're familiar with Guy Fox's attempt to blow up Parliament, here's the Irish version of Guy Fox, though mix mixing treachery and treason with the gunpowder plot with a stunning lack of intelligence that's leading him to hold a torch so close to the gunpowder basket. And here is Paddy with his compatriot, the priest, having quite literally uh, gutted the, the uh, goose that gave the golden eggs there. So we can see this feeling of being overrun, and even the future of American democracy at stake as more and more of these Irish Catholics show up. This is a depiction from the 1867 Orange Riots that broke out when we had uh, uh, groups of uh, Protestant Irish Orange Lodges march through Catholic neighborhoods in New York City. And in this case, the illustrator, uh, Thomas Nast, who you might know is the guy who designs the elephant for the Republican Party, the donkey for the Democratic Party. Thomas Nast is fairly ecumenical, portraying the Irish Protestants with the same simian ape-like features as Irish Catholics. It was known by this point that cobblestones in New York City were sometimes called Irish confetti for their likelihood to be thrown through the air during moments of celebration or conflict there. While this is taking place, the Irish Catholics, like John Hughes, though, do not back down. And one of the things we can see is that this actually encourages them to hold on even tighter to their ethnic traditions, even as these ethnic traditions might change form generation after generation. We see that with the famine, this sets up a series of chain migration. The United States and North America become known as Chirna Og, this kind of legendary land in Irish folklore, the land of the young. And in the west of Ireland and in the south, the American letter takes prominence. This would be a card sent from North America that would not only bring news of the new world, but also money. 
And the American letter was important enough for the prestige of those who would receive it that we even find cases of people actually mailing themselves the American letter so that they can receive it in their community and really uh, feel much better about having their children or their friends sent off to North America. The level of remittances, even in $1,900, is quite staggering. Over $230 million sent from Irish Americans back to Ireland. Now, these are people working jobs, digging ditches, uh, really at the most menial labor. So we can gauge the kind of sacrifice that went on to maintaining this connection. Another thing that takes place is that the chain migration is strengthened. So oftentimes, money would be sent back in the form of tickets for passage. As late as the 1920s, it's estimated that 90% of everyone who crosses the Atlantic is doing so with at least some contribution from an American sponsor. Yeah. These chains are so pronounced that even today, oftentimes, you see certain regions of Ireland associated with certain landing spots in the United States. So, for example, in Boston, there's a very strong attachment to Galway. New York is more of a Dublin town. And Philly is home to people from Donegal coming in from the northwest corner. Yeah. As well, money is sent over for new churches. Money is sent not just to keep family farms afloat, but to keep parishes going. And by the end of the century, Irish priests would be sent on fundraising tours over to North America to try to drum up money. And finally, we see the bitterness of the famine taking a role in, uh, in prolonging the nationalist ties between Irish Americans and Irish militant nationalists at home in a much more pronounced way than you would certainly get in Dublin or in London there. This medal here was given by the Irish Fenians in North America. And if you know your Fenian history, you'd realize that the year after this, in 1867, there's an attempt by Irish-American soldiers, many of them veterans of the American Civil War, who would attempt to seize hold of Canada in the hope that Canada could then be taken hostage and bartered for Irish freedom. No one's going to say they aren't enough of dreamers in that world. As a matter of fact, the nationalist tie is so strong that in the 1880s, Charles Stuart Parnell, the leader of the Irish Nationalist Party in the British Parliament, comes to visit the United States. And he becomes the fourth foreign-born leader to ever address a joint session of Congress. It's a bit of a twist for Charles Parnell having acquired his reputation mainly for getting thrown out of the British House of Commons to come over to Washington, D.C. and enjoy the crowds adoring him. There is also a cultural dimension to all of this taking place. Ireland becomes a kind of outlet for Irish-American projections there. The misery, the dirtiness, the depravity, of these urban slums is answered by this image of Ireland as a better place, almost as a kind of heaven on earth for those people there. And so we have constant 
sales of Irish music and Irish culture as well there. Uh, there is a curious streak of sentiment sentimentality applied to Ireland that is otherwise lacking in these lives of ditch diggers and brick haulers and that kind of thing. Demographically, the Irish become the second largest ethnic group in the United States and remain so to this day. Only German-Americans uh, calling for great, greater numbers. But one of the things we also see is when there is uh, mixed ethnic marriages, oftentimes within the confines of the Catholic Church, the offspring of those marriages often identify most strongly with their Irish-American ethnicity. No. And once they get here, by and large, as much as they love the old country, uh, Irish-Americans largely stay put. As a matter of fact, the return rate for Irish immigrants is the second lowest at, at the end of the 19th century of any immigrant group. Only uh, less than 10% of all Irish immigrants eventually go home. The only group lower would be Jewish immigrants who understandably are in no hurry to return to the pogroms of Eastern Europe there. Now this is in contrast with the second wave immigrants, the new wave immigrants, of whom about two-thirds would return to Europe after working decades in the United States. So the notion is that the Irish Americans are here and they've planted themselves. As they've planted themselves, they would still hold on to this kind of Irish role, this Irish uh, identity, however, and they would seek to sustain it through neighborhoods, through labor unions, many of which were initially organized along ethnic lines, through jobs as policemen and firemen there. And in doing so, they would remain quite defiant about the notion that they were supposed to assimilate into a larger Anglo-Saxon American identity then. Uh, this later cartoon from the magazine Puck shows Lady Liberty trying to stir this uh, cauldron, this melting pot of assimilation. But you can see Patty leaping up and not giving up an inch to sight despite the size differential uh, of his refusal to be assimilated into this mixture. In holding on to their identity and feeling themselves quite strongly planted in their new American session, setting, the Irish would also reach out to Jewish Americans in this urban setting. Irish and, and the Irish and the Jews fall in and make great contributions to the vaudeville theatrical routine there, with the joke that Cohen is Jewish with an E, Irish with an A, and if your name is Murray, if it's your first name, you're Jewish, if it's your second name, you're Irish. Uh, one of the big plays of the time is a story of intermarriage, a musical uh, called Abby's Irish Rose there, talking about the courting between these two groups. George Washington Plunkett. Uh, the famous, probably posthumously famous, New York politician, would talk about his friend and fellow politician, Johnny Ayrn. And you can read about how Ayrn's constituents were of mixed background. 
but he did what he could to make sure he would reach out there in the role of mediator. He eats corned beef and kosher meat with equal nonchalance, and it's all the same to him, whether he takes his hat off in the church or pulls it down over his ears in the synagogue there. This was the role of mediator that the Irish now settled for a generation or two played with those who would later arrive. As a matter of fact, on the eve of the Depression, the Irish-American newspaper, the Gaelic American, would boast quite proudly about the role that St. Patrick's Day played, not just for Irish-Americans, but for the other ethnic groups around. So you have this, St. Patrick's Day, observed as the great racial holiday of the Irish race, has been practically taken over, and this is said with pride, and adopted by American people of all races, classes, and creeds. There. The paper would boast that the parade means nearly as much to the Germans, Jews, and Italians looking on as it does to the Irish marchers. And with its strong nationalist leaning, the Gaelic American just couldn't help but throw in a little jibe contrasting the success of the St. Patrick's Day Parade with that notorious Magna Carta Day Parade, which often leads students to ask, what was Magna Carta? Precisely the reason why they brought that in. <laughs> there is an element of begrudgery along with this connection. Moving from there, we can talk about the arrival of the Irish Americans, and in this way, we can talk about it in a kind of cultural, social, and an economic sense there. One of the major factors that really comes into play for Irish Americans is the Servicemen's Readjustment Act, or as we know it better, the GI Bill. Now, by the eve of World War II, the Irish Catholic Church uh, had already assembled uh, a, a fairly formidable collection of parochial grade schools and diocesan high schools. But the percentage, the share of Irish Americans making it to third level education was quite low. By 1950, though, the census of 1950 would show that the percentage of Irish American men going to college had nearly doubled, largely in reaction to this uh, government program of the GI Bill. And there's an effect quite similar even among Irish-American women there. So this really opens the door, not just to college education, but also professional occupations that really echo in the 1950 and 1960 census. We can see culturally as well, Irish-American ethnicity is pulled away from the rougher elements here. This is a uh, 1897 shots from a film called McGinty's Wake. If anyone's familiar with the story of Finnegan's Wake, it's kind of a regular theme there. The corpse comes back to life, someone wisely hands him a drink and all goes on. And the revelry continues with the corpse being able to enjoy it, uh, which is a generous sort there. But if you look at most of the early films there, the Irish are shown as carousers, as fighters, as, as drinkers. By the late 1940s, that image has softened, but at the same time grown even more popular. So we get the depiction of the fighting 69th. In one of the final scenes of the fighting 69th, uh, if you're not familiar with it, 
The 69th was known as the Irish Regiment. Uh, there's a, a Jewish soldier who had kind of snuck his way into the fighting 69th, and he's shot mortally wounded on the battlefield. The Irish Catholic priest comes over and administers him Jewish last rites in flawless Hebrew, just to show the extent to which the bond has been made. This is a film, uh, James Cagney and Yankee Doodle Dandy, which talks about the biography of George Cohen. And in the film, the filmmaker has FDR praising the Irish Americans for carrying your love of country like a flag right out in the open. It's a great quality there. With the kind of reversal of the Nazi racial rhetoric of the master race, the Irish and their role as mediators have really become important in assembling the collective American energies from various groups and defeating the Germans. As well, we have this 1944 film, Going My Way with Bing Crosby, nominated for 10 Oscars, winning seven of them. And in the film, we have this kind of intergenerational transfer. Barry Fitzgerald is the old, crusty Irish Catholic priest of the old sort, suspicious, often angry, quirky, and hard to understand. And here comes Bing Crosby, the crooning Irish-American college graduate, who's there to kind of smooth things over, organize the boys in the neighborhood, and take Irish America to a new level. This new level is also reached in the writings of another prominent Irish-American at the time, Bishop Fulton J. Sheen. Sheen would start up a TV show, Life is Worth Living, and it would be a long-playing show in the early days of TV. Uh, it was scheduled opposite Milton Berle's uh, show, your show of shows, but he would still draw between 10 and 30 million viewers. And even Burl was forced to begrudgingly accept that on Fulton Sheen's show, he's got better writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John there. But it's significant because Sheen's audience extends far beyond the Catholic Church, far beyond any kind of parochial boundaries. Sheen would insist that the nativism that had Irish Americans had experienced and witnessed was more based on misunderstanding than pure hate. And so, in the 1950s, Sheen could tell his audience that there's only 100 people in the world who truly hate the Catholic Church, but there are millions who hate what they perceive to be the Catholic Church. He set about trying to explain, trying to understand what was taking place with a confidence in the 1950s that would have been very hard to come by in the 1920s and certainly impossible in the 1850s. We end then with the election or perhaps even the ascension of John F. Kennedy as president in 1960. Uh, John F. Kennedy came to office at a point where Irish Americans controlled a slew of national political positions there. Whether it was uh, Speaker of the House of Representatives or through a number of very prominent offices. And in tying this in and trying to aim us forward, 
I'd hope you allow me just one personal anecdote. I tried to hold myself back on the self-relevatory Blarney here, but I want to take you back to the late 1980s in a liquor store on the east side of Buffalo, uh, where I grew up, the east side, a fairly rough area. But my father and I had stopped by to pick up a bottle of something for him to deliver to one of his clients. Now, at that point, I was a snot-nosed college kid, just done with my first semester at a prestigious small liberal arts college in New England, where I'd read great playwrights and novelists like uh, William Butler Yeats and James Joyce. And in a move that nowadays might get called snarky, but was probably more likely just smug, we were walking around when I came to a discount bin of lower-priced liquors. I plucked from this discount bin a bottle of wild Irish rose, knowing the reputation that it had. And I suggested to my father that we should bring this along. There. Now, my father was uh, a self-effacing man, but very wise, with the kind of insight that comes from growing up during the Depression and being the first in his family to go to college, let alone law school. And he looked over to tell me quietly but surely, your grandfather had a taste for wild Irish rose. As if to explain to me that no matter what I did, where I went, or what I accomplished, I was the grandson of a wild Irish rose drinking man. <laughs> and in the end, I think that's the major purpose of my presentation, is that we might consider ourselves the grandchildren, or perhaps the great-grandchildren of our wild Irish rose-drinking predecessors. And in doing so, as we encounter the hewers of wood and the drawers of water of 21st century America, we might then ask if we will lend them a hand or, having climbed to this prestigious position, whether we'll just pull the ladder up after ourselves. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.